Well, I think the, the message was clear. Our Savior was born many years ago, and he was, came here. He was born to be the Savior of the world. And what a joy it is to be able to, to celebrate together, to look at the events surrounding the birth of Christ, the announcement that was given to the shepherds, the glory that was involved in all of that. John tells us that God sent his son to be our savior, that the word was made flesh, the Bible says, and dwelt among us, and we beheld the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This morning, I want to draw your attention to a passage from Luke chapter 1, as we wrap up the, our service here this morning. And I want to look at an account with Mary after she had initially come to visit Elizabeth. Mary was first told by the angel Gabriel, it was foretold to her that she would be the one who was chosen by God to bear and bring forth God's only begotten Son. And that the Holy Spirit would come upon her and the power of the highest should overshadow her. And, and then she was told that her cousin Elizabeth, who was well stricken in years and was called barren, was also pregnant and she would bring forth a son in her old age. And we know him to be John the Baptist. And so once the angel departed from Mary, she went, into, went to visit her cousin Elizabeth and the two of them got together, spent some time talking about what different encounters they had and and just what life would be like going forth from this point. And we read in verses 46 down through verse 56 here in Luke chapter 1. Some of your Bibles may have a heading over this passage. It may say something like Mary's joyful song. It was a song of praise that Mary was offering to God after this time that she had spent with her cousin Elizabeth, and as she's understanding the enormity of what's happening to her and what God is doing within her, she is excited and she's brought to this point where she can do nothing more but to give praise to God. You can never, ever offer enough praise to God. And we as believers here have every reason to offer God the absolute highest praise at all times, regardless of what your life is going through, regardless of how catastrophic things may be, regardless of how good things may be, there is joy that a believer can have no matter the circumstances because they've been saved by the grace of God and they have a promised home in heaven. Through the announcement of the angel, Mary was offered a glimpse into the greatness of God. She's given just a snapshot of what this is going to look like and it just served to heighten her view and her impression of God. She was already highly favored by God and you don't get that way by occasionally offering God some time and attention. God isn't pleased with us when we're willing only to offer him our time and effort when it's convenient for us. God is pleased with us when we give him our all, when we regard everything else in life less important than him and recognize that his purposes and his will are far superior to what we could ever imagine doing on our own. God was highly pleased with Mary because her life served as a testament to her faithfulness and her devotion to God. For Mary, it was not an act. It was not a show that she was putting on once a week like maybe we do on a Sunday. It was her life. And from the moment that she got up in the morning until the moment she closed her eyes at sleep at night, she was striving to honor God. She was striving to please God with her words and with her works. 
And when the angel first departed from her, we're told that she immediately went and she traveled to uh, the land of Judah to Zacharias and Elizabeth's house. The journey this, from Nazareth up in Galilee to where Zacharias and Elizabeth lived was roughly about 70 miles. She doesn't bother to speak to anyone in her own hometown in Nazareth. Instead, she travels this great distance by herself to be with her cousin Elizabeth. She had been so devoted to the Lord that all other relationships were secondary to her. Whatever relationships, whatever friendships she had back in Nazareth in her own hometown, her number one relationship was to the Lord. Gabriel had told her that her cousin Elizabeth was also pregnant in her old age. So without even hesitating, she sets out to visit Elizabeth. And I can only imagine what this journey must have looked like. For Mary to go through this journey where she's by herself, and she's traveling the 70 miles from the north in Nazareth down to Judah in the south. What she's thinking about, what moments in prayer she must have had as she's journeying along this way, wondering what she's going to come upon, wondering how Elizabeth is going to receive her, wondering if all the things that she's just been told are indeed going to come true. There are some of my most cherished moments of prayer that have come after the Lord has just done something really awesome in my life. And I'm on my way to go tell someone about it. Some exciting things happen and, and I'm excited to share the news with someone else. And maybe as I'm driving in the car or walking up to someone's front door and, and waiting in anticipation to tell them about this good news that has just happened, there's an excitement. And those moments that I'm able to have in prayer are some of the most precious moments that I can think of as God really helps exponentially grow my faith, my appreciation of Him. Mary journeyed 70 miles. She had all sorts of time to think about the Lord, to be alone with the Lord. And I'm sure that as she arrived there in Judah, as she knocked on Elizabeth and Zacharias' door, that she just billowed over with praise and rejoicing as she sees that Elizabeth indeed is pregnant, just as the angel Gabriel had said. At the very least, we can learn several things from Mary. And I think we can learn, number one, that there should be an importance as to our high view of God that we should have. A theologian by the name of A.W. Tozer, he wrote... What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has risen above its religion and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Therefore, worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. In other words, if we have a high view of God, our worship and our daily Christian life will demonstrate a great depth and a great appreciation for God. But if we have a low view of God, our worship and our day-to-day -day Christian life will demonstrate much shallowness, much depth in our appreciation to God. We'll worry all the time. We'll be concerned about things. We'll doubt God's ability to do certain things. We'll question whether or not His Word can actually come true. A Puritan Presbyterian clergyman by the name of Stephen Sharnock. He wrote a book on the existence and the attributes of God. And this is a little bit of a lengthier quote, but I want you to listen to what he says about this. Since we cannot have a full notion of God, we should endeavor to make our notion of God as high and as pure as we can. All the perfections of God are infinitely elevated above the excellencies of the creatures above whatsoever it can be conceived by the clearest and most piercing understanding. The nature of God as a spirit, as infinitely superior to whatsoever we can conceive, perfect in the notion of a created spirit. Whatever God is, he is infinitely so. He is infinite wisdom, infinite goodness, infinite knowledge, 
infinite power, infinite spirit, infinitely distant from the weakness of creature, infinitely mounted above the excellencies of creatures, as easy to be known that God is, as impossible to be comprehended what he is. Conceive of him as excellent, without any imperfection, a spirit without parts, great without quantity, perfect without quality, everywhere without place, powerful without members, understanding without ignorance, sense without reasoning, light without darkness, infinitely more excelling than the beauty of all creatures, than the light of the sun, pure and unviolated, exceeds the splendor of the sun, dispersed and divided through a cloudy and misty air. And when you've risen to the highest, conceive God yet infinitely above all you can conceive of spirit and acknowledge the infirmity of your own mind. And whatsoever conception comes into your mind, say, this is not God. God is more than this. If I could conceive him, he were not God. For God is incomprehensibly above whatsoever I can say, whatsoever I can think and conceive of him. Our view of God ought to be so high that even when we think we finally understood and comprehended how great and how big and how enormous and how magnificent God is, we ought to accept that he is still infinitely greater than our greatest idea of him. Mary had already found high favor in the eyes of God. And now her eyes had been opened even more to the goodness of God. Her view of God just expanded. And this is evidenced in the song of praise that she offers to him. The more honor and blessings that God pours out upon us, the more we ought to be praising him. And in case you're sitting back and you're waiting for God to bless you, waiting for God to give you a reason to praise him more highly. Let me just remind you that the very air that you're breathing into your lungs right now has been supplied to you by this great and incredible God. The very body that you're occupying right now is literally being held together by this same God. Now, it may be weaker, it may be frailer day after day, but that is the result of our sin. That's not God's fault. He didn't fail you. Not to mention the fact that God has given us his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to take our place on Calvary's cross, who has made atonement for all of our sin. Jesus has made heaven possible for all who believe on him as their savior. God has given us every reason under the sun to be worshiping, to be praising him greater and greater every day. The following verses go on to describe some of Mary's reasons why she offers this high praise of God. Would you look with me at verses 48 and 49 here in Luke chapter 1? She says, For he hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. Mary rejoices in the Lord because of the goodness of God that was upon her. God was using her to do great and mighty things. God had regarded, he, she says, the low estate of his handmaiden. When others may have looked down upon her, when others may have cast her off, thinking that there was nothing special about her, nothing significant about her, nothing noteworthy about her, that she would ever be the one chosen if they were asked to select, who do you think God would choose to do this? Mary would be at the bottom of the list. But God would use her. Mary was the epitome 
of what the Jews expected from a person from Nazareth. Never thinking that anything at all good could come from Nazareth. And even those who lived there seemed to have such a low view of themselves. Almost accepting the notion that they were beneath everyone else. And yet out of all of this, Mary praises God and says that again in verse 48-49, For he hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. God honored Mary because her faithfulness and because of her devotion to him, despite all the social and financial shortcomings and just how low she was there as a, as a human being and viewed upon by even those among Nazareth. And this is something that we see God do in other portions of Scripture as well. In Genesis chapter 29 and verse 31, God honored a woman by the name of Leah despite all of her shortcomings. It says in in 1 Samuel, oh, I'm sorry, in Genesis 29, 31, it says, And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. We also read about Hannah in 1 Samuel 1 and verse 19. She was provoked and she was made to fret and she was constantly insulted. And therefore God gave her a son, and the Bible says, And they rose up in the morning early and worshipped before the Lord and returned and came to their house to Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. It is often the case that God shows favor upon those who have been wrongfully depressed, wrongfully despised, and cast down, especially when they have been faithful to God. This is what we see in Mary's case, but God not only gave her the taste of favor, he secured a lasting honor to her. At the end of verse number 48, it states, From henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. Mary's soul magnified the Lord because of the kindness, because of the compassion that God had shown to her. Look with me again at what it says there in verse 49. It says, For he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. You see, Mary never takes her focus off of God and recognizes always that it's God the one who is doing all this to her. She recognized the immensity of what is happening to her. It's not just a great thing that, was, that, that, that she was a virgin that should conceive. But it is a great thing that she should conceive and bring forth the very Son of God. God was physically joining humanity, joining his creation in the person of Jesus Christ. And Mary acknowledges that Gabriel's words are true, that this would all be done through the power of the Holy Ghost when she says, and holy is his name. And notice, though, how Mary shifts in her song of praise. The first four verses were primarily about her own personal experience, what she experienced for herself, how she saw things happening to her specifically. But the rest of the song deals with God's dealing with the rest of the world. Look at what it says here in verse number 50. It says, And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. It's no secret that God has mercy on reserve for all those who have a reverent fear for his majesty and for his holiness. The Psalms speak of this in great detail, of the ever-enduring mercy of God. But it never fully showed its true form before God sending his only begotten son into the world. A gift that was made to save men from their sin. God demonstrated mercy unseen before through sending Jesus to bring an everlasting righteousness through himself. And with that, he would bring an everlasting salvation to all who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. As people have a reverential fear of God, recognizing who he is, recognizing who they are in relation to this holy and magnificent God, that he sees and knows everything, including every single one of their sins, that they are completely unworthy of God's grace, that they're completely of being shown the mercy of God as well, that they're completely in need of him at all times. Those that are trusting completely in Christ, his mercy is on every single one of them. 
And in verse 51, it describes that his mercy is on them that fear him, and it's demonstrated through his great strength. Notice what it says. It says, he hath showed strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. God's great strength is on display all throughout this wonderful creation. But it is more active in the lives of those who know Christ personally, who those, of those who reverently fear him and are following after him day after day. God often works according to the expectations of our imaginations, especially when we're faithful to him. But verse 51 describes what happens to the proud, those who think that they know how God is going to work. Notice again what it says there at the end of verse number 51. It says, He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. Those that are prideful think that they're going to get their way. They think that God is some magical genie who's going to grant them every, every single thing that they want. But the reality of it, God says, the proud would be made low. They're going to be scattered, he says, in the imagination of their own hearts. God does not allow them to prosper in the ways of their own will. He allows them instead to be brought low by the very means by which they thought they were going to advance themselves and establish themselves. In verse 52, it goes on to describe what God does to those who think they are mighty. It says, He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. Those that are mighty think that they're secure in themselves. But God puts them down overturns their power. He humbles them in such a way where they only see that it is God who is the almighty, all-powerful one. And then in verse 53, it is revealed how God honors the poor and the hungry who fear him. He hath filled the hungry with good things and the rich he hath sent empty away. Those who were so poor that had no means of feeding themselves, no means of providing for themselves and their families by some miraculous turn of God's providence, the Bible says, Favor is offered them by God. They have come to be filled, it says, with good things. While on the other hand, it is expressed how God deals with those who were rich, those who offer no thought to anything else, those who just live with the expectation that tomorrow is going to bring the same riches as they have today, those who are trusting in their riches instead of trusting in God. They believe that all the wealth and all the prominence that they're enjoying today is going to last forever. And strangely enough to them, God will send them away empty-handed and completely impoverished. These words are very similar to the words of Solomon back in Ecclesiastes 9, verse 11, where he says, I returned and I saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise, nor yet riches to the men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill, but time and chance happeneth to them all. God disappoints the expectations of all those who promise themselves great things in this world. And he takes pleasure in outdoing the expectations of those who promise themselves very little in this world, but look to God to be the one who provides. As a righteous God, it is his glory to humble those who exalt themselves and strike fear in the hearts and minds of those who think that they are secure in their own power and in their own strength. And in just the same way, as a good and gracious God, it is also his glory to exalt those who humble themselves, to bring comfort to those who are reverently fearing him. It is the same message of the gospel. The apostle Paul declared in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 26 to 27, he says, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. You see, when Christ even selected his 12 disciples, he chose primarily a company of poor and despised men, men of low degree, and he exalted them and gave them positions, gave them a 
situation and a, and a context and a setting of prominence among him. God is no respecter of persons, but he's just looking for those who will be faithful to him. And then in verses 54 and 55, we see the message now shift specifically to the nation of Israel. It says, He hath hope in his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. The Jews always expected that the Messiah would offer them a special manner of strength and of glory and prominence because they had long been God's people. God started everything with them. God had helped them by lifting them up when they had fallen and could not help themselves. Those that were burdened from their old life would be helped up by the blessings of God through his grace and truth that would come through Jesus Christ. God sending Jesus on whom help was offered for, for poor sinners. He was the greatest kindness that could ever be offered. He was the greatest help that could ever be provided for his people of Israel. And that is clearly declared in these two verses. He hath hope in his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. God had not forgotten about his people. He remembered his promise of mercy. It is a promise of mercy that was first promised to their forefathers, particularly to Abraham, as he mentions there in number 55, that in his seed all the families of the earth forever shall be blessed. Whatever God has spoken, he will be faithful to perform it. As we wrap up our, our message this morning, we come to verse number 56, which is actually no longer part of Mary's song of praise, but now describes what happened over the next several months. And Mary abode with her, Elizabeth, about three months and returned to her own house. After Mary had spent three months with Elizabeth, she would then return to her home of Nazareth. She'd make that 70-mile journey again back home. But now she has the visible appearance of what the angel Gabriel announced to her, that she would conceive through the power of the Holy Ghost. There was now no hiding the fact that she was indeed pregnant. She would be forced to deal with all the shock and all the surprise by everyone that knew her now. And that she was still betrothed to Joseph, even though she's now pregnant. And the two of them had not been together. But what we remember of Mary before she returned to Nazareth is her spirit of honor and praise that she offered to the Lord as she magnified him in her joyful song. The Lord is good, and his mercy endureth forever. And it is the message of Jesus Christ, of grace and truth, that this Christmas season is all about. It is the message that we ought to proclaim, and we ought to proclaim it with joy to everyone that we can as often as we can. Just like Mary, we have every reason to be offering as high as praise as we can and an honor to God. And it should be that we're praising and honoring God in our witness and in our testimony to this world. God has given us such an amazing opportunity to be a blessing to people who are living in darkness. He has given us his light by which we can bring it forth. As Matthew says, be a light that is set upon a hill. As we're given this blessed opportunity, let's take advantage of it. Let's invite people to church. Let's share with them the blessings of who God is to us personally, how he's brought salvation to us. Go and tell them your story. Tell them what Jesus has personally done to you of the great things and the mighty things that he has done for you personally. And may it be a blessed Christmas as you share about that. So much of the season gets wrapped up in gifts, gets wrapped up in parties, gets wrapped up in different celebrations that we have. And we can so easily lose focus on what it really should be. We have a sign in our, in our living room that says, Jesus is the reason for the season. And we can easily forget that. But I think even more than that, Jesus is the reason for every season. He's not just the reason for the season of December or on Christmas Day. But as long as you have life and breath within you, he is the reason for all of it. Let's not forget that. As we go and, and celebrate Christmas the, own way, our, the unique ways in which we do, 
May we be reminded that there's more to it than giving a gift and wearing a silly sweater and eating cookies, decorating trees, looking at Christmas lights, and all the fun that comes with all of that. But may we remember that we're celebrating the greatest gift that has come, Jesus Christ, the one who brings salvation to all who come to him in faith. Mary rejoiced in knowing that she was going to be the one whom God had chosen to bring forth this child. He was the savior of even Mary. And she recognized that this great privilege was not something that should ever be taken lightly, but that it was cause, or cause for her to rejoice forevermore for who God is and what he was doing specifically in her life. May we bow in prayer this morning as we thank the Lord for the blessed gift of Jesus Christ and just ask that he would work on each and every one of us, that we might celebrate him the right way and have the highest praise to the one who deserves all of it. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful to be in your house here this, this morning, Lord, to worship our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we echo the song of joy and praise that Mary offered. Lord, we know that each and every one of us are, Lord, indebted to you. But Lord, it's not that we praise you because we're indebted to you. We praise you, Lord, because we love you. We love you, Lord, for who you are. We love you, Lord, for loving us. We love you, Lord, for giving us your only begotten Son. May we worship you, Lord, because we desire to worship you, not because we feel obligated to. May you receive the highest praise. And even as we give you what we view as our highest praise, may we realize, Lord, that it is so infinitely short of what you truly deserve. Thank you, Lord, for first loving us and for sending us your only begotten Son. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.